Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm Phil Ford. A MacGuffin is something that the main characters in a movie are all chasing after. It could be a suitcase full of money, a priceless work of art, or a doomsday weapon. But whatever it is, it matters a lot to the characters. To the audience, though, the MacGuffin matters only to the degree that it moves the plot along. Now, three of the four movies in the Indiana Jones franchise are propelled by MacGuffins. The Sankara Stones, The Holy Grail the Crystal Skull. However, in the first and best of these films, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the obligatory mysterious lost ancient artifact is no MacGuffin. It might look like one. I mean, it's an ornate gold box, and it does turn out to be a weapon of sorts. But it's what's in the box that counts. And what's in the box is God, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the Old Testament God. That god is a character of sorts, albeit a dangerous and enigmatic character we never see directly, and whose motivations we can only guess. We can scarcely recognize the god in the box. It is inhuman, strange, cruel, and infinitely old, more like Lovecraft's great old ones than the god of our churches. As a matter of fact, maybe it's not one god, maybe it's a whole bunch of them. Needless to say, when Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981, neither I nor any of the kids at school thought about any of this stuff. We didn't think it was an imperishable work of cinema. We just thought it was a lot of fun, a carnival ride studded with scary and spectacular moments we dared each other to keep our eyes open for. Our parents told us how it reminded them of the movies they saw in their childhood, but who cared about that? With the passage of time, though, it is easier to see Raiders as a masterpiece, consummately fluent in the language and literature of film. And it is also easier to see the rifts that open up in its glossy Hollywood surfaces, revealing abyssal depths swarming with half-glimpsed shapes, both angelic and monstrous. Raiders of the Lost Ark has revealed itself to be a Trojan horse of the weird, easy to let in, but once inside, apt to take over. This is one of our best conversations, and I hope you enjoy hearing it as much as J.F. and I did in having it. And the conversation isn't over. In recording this episode, we also talked about the role of sacrifice in magic, but that part of the discussion didn't quite fit with the rest of it, so we're releasing it on our Patreon. And once it's up, our fantastically creative and insightful patrons... Patrons like Ethan Treister, Andrew Kirsten, Adam Natsky, Raymond Anderson, Carl Young, Nicholas Stanton, Dave Tully, Nina West, Sean Feeney, Robert White, and others who I'm no doubt shamefully forgetting. Sorry, guys. This merry crew will continue the conversation in the comments of our Patreon page, which, if you didn't already know, is patreon.com forward slash weird studies. Maybe you're a regular listener and have been on the fence for a while, thinking, I don't know. I got half a mind to join the Weird Studies Patreon. Let's just see where this goes. All you need is a little push. Maybe you're looking for a sign. Okay. Come closer. 
get right up next to the sound of my voice. Turn the volume up. I'm going to open the box of gods. Stop what you're doing. Listen carefully. But for God's sake, don't look at it. Did you watch the movie? Oh, yeah. I watched it last night, and it's been a little while since the last time I saw it. And yet, watching it again, I realize how every line, every gesture, almost every little detail of the movie is just inscribed in my memory. Yeah. I can't, you, know, you know how, like, there's some songs that you, can, uh, that you know well enough that you can sing along with them? You know, there's some movies that you can kind of sing along with. And uh, this is one of those movies, partly because um, for the odd whimsical reason that, okay, so this came out in 1981, so I was 12, the summer right. that it came out. And it was a huge hit. It was the big summer movie that year. And my sister is a couple of years older than me. She, was, she would have been 13. She's just old enough that she and I could go to the movies together without her parents. And my sister had a crush on one of the actors in the movie. Which one? The guy who plays Belloc. His name's <laughs> Paul Freeman. And wow. so she so so she kept wanting to see it over and over again. And so I kept going with her. You know, I remember too feeling like, you know, I was getting a little bored by the end watching this movie over and over again. But as a result, you know, coming back to it now, that's like a, a gift that my younger self has given my older self. Because when I come back to it, it is just like falling into a world of enchantment. Right. You know, like and the storybook just, world of enchantment. And it's just impressed on your mind. It's just there. Every frame of it is kind of singed into your brain. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like putting on an old comfy dressing gown, sitting in a sofa that's just been molded to the shape of your body. It's just that comfortable feeling. And yet at the same time, it's not just a sort of dozy dull familiarity. The movie is so vividly exciting to watch still yeah. after all these times I've seen it, after all these decades that it's been out there, after all of the parodies, all of the many ways that film is memed and referenced, it's still fresh. Yeah. it's It's got that Lotus-like quality where it's just like, just pops out of the swamp. Yep. And it's funny what you say about movies you can sing along to. I really like that because there are certain films that achieve a level that's like music. You can watch them over and over again. And it's like no one would fault you for listening to Beethoven's Ninth or The White Album or whatever over and over again. That's what you do with music. But with right. films, it's, oh, you watch, we, oh, we've already seen that. You know, some people never yeah, you, you, you see it, watch a film again. Yeah, you, um, know, you know how it ends, so yeah, why watch it exactly, again? Exactly, right. I, I think there are many, like M. Night, uh, uh, what's his name? Shyamalan. Shyamalan. Shyamalan's, his films, I think, are, I don't know why I'm even bringing him up. He just popped in my head as someone who constructs films for a kind of payoff at the end. And once you get the payoff, the, the films don't make sense anymore. You know, you watch Signs. I watch. Uh, I want to watch that with my daughters. I've seen that film. Yeah. It's like the film actually... Like all you see on the second viewing is how he's setting up his twist. <laughs> it's like really, really bad. But then there are films that- um, It's like a pornographic film. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, it's like uh, I've yeah. watched Ron Jeremy do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's exhausted, you know. Once it's finished, but uh, films like Raiders uh, are so musical in their essence, and um, yeah. and so rely so much on on rhythm and timbre and all kinds of things exactly. we get imported in from music that you get more and more the more you watch it. And uh, in fact, I think so. I think it was uh, yeah. Steven Soderbergh had a website a few years ago where he he put. Raiders of the Lost Ark on there with no color and no sound, just so you can watch like Spielberg's editing choices, which are like beyond genius. We were talking in our extra from this from this week. We were talking about a type of genius that you know, like I play chess, you play the piano, but there are these certain luminaries that are so. There's levels beyond levels yeah. to both of those and, pursuits, and it's not just like you can see how you could scale your way to that level. There's this 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 diametric or like qualitative difference. Well, Spielberg yeah. is like that, you know, Spielberg's choices are always astounding. Um, and in that film, he's at his very, very best, I find. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and apparently he shot it really fast. They had a smaller budget than they wanted. Uh, so they decided to embrace the aesthetic of those old serials that of course the f the one thing everybody knows is that this film, to some extent, like Star Wars, is set up as a homage, a loving homage to those. Uh, I guess they were movie serials, things like Flash Gordon, yeah, uh, shorts that they would put on a you know an old fashioned movie program. This was back in the old days of those big movie palaces where they would have a movie program. So you would have an A picture, a B picture, you'd have one or two shorts, maybe a cartoon. That's where all the Bugs Bunny cartoons come from. And that's where they had serials, cowboy serials, space opera serials, like, you know, Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. I'm trying to think. I'm pretty sure I've seen Flash Gordon. I think they used to show those on the old TV Ontario. But yeah, you know, obviously in a thousand and one ways, they're mimicking the aesthetic, the look, the feel of that. But also partly by the exigencies of the studio politics of the time, they were kind of required to adopt the lightning fast shooting schedules right? and uh, embrace improvisation and bricolage, making do with what they had at hand. All of which makes it all the more remarkable that you can just break down that film shot by shot and see this kind of minute calculation and absolute consummate artistry. Well, Spielberg builds his films in pre-production. He knows exactly what he's going to shoot. I mean, it's not true. He does leave room for improvisation from what I know, but he, he is very much a kind of storyboard kind of filmmaker. He knows how uh -huh. he wants to shoot it. So that helps. I don't think they would have been able to pull it off otherwise. Another thing, I mean, one great example of what you just said there, of the exigencies of the particular shoot of that particular production cycle was that um, that, that scene where Indiana Jones shoots that guy with the sword, like this guy yeah. comes up with a saber <laughs> and he's like swinging and then, doing all this crazy moves. Well, that's because Harrison Ford had dysentery <laughs> and um, they had to shoot that scene and he's like there's no way I'm doing a fight scene today so he just in the I think it was like right when they like you know Spielberg called action and the scene started there was supposed to be a fight and then Harrison Ford just shut the guy and the guy just fell <laughs> and it's like <laughs> that was it for that scene um, so what uh, I particularly love about that is the look on Harrison Ford's face yeah just before he pulls out his gun like oh. Yeah, not again. Shit. This <laughs> big fight scene coming up. It has this one of the things that's great about Indiana Jones, and it's it's a fine line it walks, is that 
it's always winking at the audience, but at the same time committing to a subject. Like you said, that's kind of a, a revival of the old explorer genre from the pulp era, right? So the the Lost World films of the 30s and, and especially like the Lost World um, stories uh, from the 1930s from uh, all those pulp magazines. Uh, I'm saying Lost World is a kind of catch-all for that genre. That's like a modern day uh, archaeologist or explorer who goes off into the uncharted parts of the earth and finds and basically time travels to other periods while traveling geographically on our present day earth. And, and we get that in the famous opening 10 minute scene that's supposed to take place in Peru in the 1930s. But, you know, it's one of yeah. those lost city of the Incas type deals where right. you whack away a machete and there's an ancient stone idol with bats coming out of its mouth and shit like that. And it's just like, ooh, it's the lost city of, you know, fill in a 12 syllable word with a lot of consonants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that shit. Yeah. I, that's like cocaine for me. <laughs> exactly. Me too. I'll just chop that up and put it on a little glass table and snort that. <laughs> and it's a, Fucking love it's that a stuff. great avenue into the weird because if you kind of look at all the different Indiana Jones films and especially if you kind of um, root that film back into its kind of genre where it belongs and what it's paying homage to. You, you get the sense that there's a kind of mythos involved in this genre. It has to do with um, buried gods, you know? The archaeologist who goes off and digs up uh, an idol from 2,000 years ago is also digging up the god from 2,000 years ago. That yeah. The gods live in their uh, symbols. They live in their relics. And that you, there's always a danger in digging up the past, but also a great promise in digging up the past. And this is something that I really like about, I think it's something that, um, is it Kasdan, Lawrence Kasdan, the writer for Readers of the Lost Ark, one of the great, yeah. great screenwriters. Um, he really gets that. And I find that, you know, I've, I've said before that there are only three films that have made me feel the presence of that being, that mythological being we call Yahweh, that God, you know, the God of the Judeo-Christian pantheon. Pantheon of one. Um, a pantheon of one with a bulging closet of right. gods that have been like tied up and with <laughs> yeah, exactly. like fucking duct tape over their mouths, <laughs> banging at the door ineffectually with their heads. Yeah. It's the only part they can move. Oh, we can talk about that today. I just read something about Dagon and uh, Yahweh that was interesting. Uh, Dagon being the god of the Philistines in the ancient world. But the, 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 my point being that Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of those three films that I feel like when you watch it, it's not just a kind of like fun roller coaster kind of homage to the pulp era. It has a kind of presence that really brings it, that's what makes it music. Uh, the soundtrack, the lighting, and the, the dialogue, the way they choose to um, deliver the information, the way they, they go about expositing information. And in all this contributes to a kind of mood that I find extremely uh ensorcelling right like it's oh, it's God, powerful yeah. and uh and and threatening and dangerous this is not a god that you want to fuck with uh this yahweh guy nope um the other two films are 2001 but that's a that's slightly different i would revise that now but another one is uh the end of the affair just for the people who might may have seen it with ray fines and julianne moore fantastic film i've never seen it neil jordan directed it it's based on a book by graham green and uh, it's it's really something special. But Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
while we're talking about music in a sense of like the flow and orderliness and pleasing surprises of the like the temporal flow of a film, its points of attraction and repulsion, its departures and arrivals, its tensions and releases, that kind of meta music. It's also worth noting the score, the actual music music to this film is fucking awesome. Yeah. And getting back, I mean, it's John Williams. And, you know, if, when you grow up as a classical music geek, you're taught when you're young to be like, oh, John Williams. A so, plagiarist. So middle brow. Yeah, he is a thief. He's a thieving magpie of <laughs> genius. There's a genius to what he does. And, you know, like his uh, deployment of Wagnerian slash Bucknerian kind of like harmonies and light motivic workings out and so on. That shit ain't easy. There's not many composers alive who really have command of that language. Mm -hmm. But with John Williams' special genius is his ability to use that language to create sounds that perfectly do what the film is doing. So you were just talking about how this film almost uniquely captures the sense of Yahweh as this uh, this dread god. This ancient god, not, not the An modern ancient, Yahweh, this ancient yeah. god of the desert. An ancient, incomprehensible god, a Lovecraftian god. Like the Yahweh of Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the great old ones. Yes, absolutely. And, and so, you know, there's a little leitmotif, a little uh, musical figure that is used throughout this film. And I think possibly in the sequels, although I've watched them much less and I haven't returned Not to if them. it's the music I'm thinking of, that kind of three note. Yep. I've got one? my little melodica here. Oh, right. I'll play it for you. So it sort of sounds like this. Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. And what it is, is a simple bass line. We've talked about this on the show, uh, the weird music show we did where I talked about Liszt's Mephisto Waltz, and we spent a certain amount of time talking about the tritone. Yeah. Uh, or augmented fourth or diminished fifth. It's a it's the interval that's one note flat from a perfect fifth. So this is a perfect fifth. And this is the tritone. And the tritone called the Diabolus in Musica in the old days. Not so much that it was a, a forbidden interval, but it was an interval that is caused by certain technical aspects of uh, writing counterpoint. It becomes a devil in the sense of being a total pain in the ass if you're a composer. But that sense of Diabolus has sort of mutated over the last half a millennium into a general sense of like, that's the interval of eldritch wrongness, right. of spooky wrongness, Right. So, for example, the, uh, you know, Sasson Dance Macabre opens up with. It opens up with uh, a fanfare in tritones, right? Well, what John Williams is doing is he's giving us a basic root motion. Like you would hear something like this. And the motion is down a fifth, but with that little tritone thrown in there. And now, if we want to make it sound extra spooky, we're simply going to layer minor chords over each of those notes. And we're going to have those minor chords, the 
technical term for this is planing, where the three notes are moving as a pack in the same arrangement. So it's a minor chord, a minor chord, a minor chord, which is technically bad voice leading if, if we're going back to the old days where people cared about the Diabolus and Musica. But it's a technique that a lot of 20th century composers like Debussy use to give their music a kind of special color. And in this particular instance, when we have these planing minor chords, it's a perfect spooky sound. It's it's John Williams' absolute consummate virtuosity and coming up with sounds to give us that mood, that all important mood. Like remember we were talking about uh, Lovecraft, you know, in our Lovecraft episode, and we're talking about how important it was to Lovecraft. The story is almost secondary. Everything starts with an image that's basically atemporal. And the thing that matters about that image is its mood, the, the flavor of it, this particular feel, you know, the way you wake up in the morning and you've had a dream. And even if you can hardly remember any of the details of the dream, you can't remember the plot. You remember how that dream felt to you, the, you know, an unspeakably precise kind of emotion. It's that kind of emotion that Lovecraft was always after. And, what makes Raiders of the Lost Ark work so well is it's got a plot, it's got great characters, it's got all kinds of incident, but above all, it has that mood. And uh, that's the music of it and the literal and figurative music of it too, that ability to just give you something that feels perfect, like that Lovecraftian old god yeah. <laughs> that comes swarming out of the Ark of the Covenant in the last act. That is captured perfectly in that little musical leitmotif. There's a, there's a moment in the dialogue at the beginning in that wonderful scene. It's a, it's a total, this is a scene that any producer, you know, who follows the rules today would want to cut out of the film and somehow, um, you know, distribute elsewhere through and by other means. It's the scene where Indiana Jones meets with the the G-men, the government guys who want to hire him to go find the Ark of the Covenant that the Nazis are looking for. It's, a, it's about a five-minute scene, and it's all dialogue. It's all dialogue. It's all exposition. It's all just about giving you the background you need to get. And yet, somehow, Spielberg makes this expositional scene, one of the most memorable scenes in cinema, because it's in that scene that this sudden mood starts to creep into the film. And the music yeah. first occurs in that scene, towards the end of the scene. The scene ends, I think, with one of the government guys looking at a picture of the Ark of the Covenant being wielded or brandished or whatever by the Is Israelites. And you can see these beams of light coming down and people dying i think in a in a in a battlefield and it's like killed by its power and uh i think one of the government guys goes good god as he's looking at this illustration and uh marcus brody indiana jones's um kind of handler says that's what the hebrews thought <laughs> i just love that <laughs> it's we know we're in a zone we're not in good versus evil necessarily there is a good versus evil dichotomy going on on earth between indiana jones who represents the us of a and the nazis who represent everything that's horrible in the universe but then the god that they're fighting over somehow is outside of that dichotomy you can't say he's good. You can't say he's evil. He's just beyond. Like you just said, like he's a great old one. 
And the many, many parts of the film confirm this. Of course, there's the famous ritual scene at the end where the Nazis, or Belloc, the French archaeologist who's working with the Nazis, opens the Ark and tries to call up its forces. And of course, these angels come out and then the angels turn into demons. When I first saw the film as a kid and my grandmother's, I must have been four or five. Let's see. It was playing on TV, so I must have been six or seven by the time it was airing on television. Uh, My cousin told me, see, those are angels, but they're going to show that they're actually devils. And at the end, when the you can see the, the the ark shoots up a kind of like plume of smoke that goes up to heaven and then comes back down. My cousin was telling me that that's the devils being thrown back into hell, back into the ark. That that was too dualistic, too Catholic. It doesn't really it doesn't really work to no. explain what's going the on angel, in that scene. The angels are the devils. The, the devils. The, the devils are angels, right? Yeah. And um, I think what's going on in that scene is very interesting, and I, I hope to get to it. But uh, there are many parts in the film that reinforce this idea that what we're dealing with here are forces that are beyond our comprehension. An ancient god whose cult is not um, uh, what it used to be, that there's no direct connection anymore to this to this being. In fact, any type of direct connection to this being implies great danger. And... And the whole film has that feeling of messing with powers that are just too great. Which puts it in a different pulp subgenre. So we've already talked about the lost world subgenre. And then there's also the messing with forces you don't understand subgenre. And of course, these things crisscross, you know, they can overlap. Yeah, they're otherwise known as weird, (laughs) the weird genre. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which is why we are doing it on this show. Might seem like a very normy sort of piece of pop culture to be bringing into a show that, I mean, uh, what's the last thing that we did? It was on Errol Morris's... uh, essay on lobsters and pianists and panpsychism. The last one we recorded is, was on Sun Ra, Spaces of the Place. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're we're kind of uh we're kind of zigzagging all over the place. But I actually would argue that in ways that were not very legible in nineteen eighty one when this film was released, uh this is a film that actually does belong in the pantheon of of weird fiction. So what's it about? Well for the one person listening to this who hasn't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> uh, it's a film by Steven Spielberg starring Harrison Ford about an archaeologist named Indiana Jones who is tasked by his government, by the U.S. government, given this job to go and capture the Ark of the Covenant uh, before the Nazis get to it in Egypt. Because the Nazis are digging up occult relics all over the world as uh, the government... Uh, the, the government guy says at the beginning of the film, Hitler's a nuts on the subject. He loves the occult. And uh, which there's some truth to that, that the Nazis were interested in the occult. Uh, and um, there's an excellent book by Nigel Goodrick Clark. Actually, a couple of books on the intersection between Nazism and occultism. So it's not all uh, lurid history channel fabrication. No. And so Indiana Jones goes off and basically battles the Nazis, gets the Ark back, brings it back to the U.S., and that's the story. Now, Indiana Jones's great rival, and this is kind of a trickster figure in the film, also Indiana Jones's dark twin or a shadow, is a French archaeologist named Belloc. Belloc basically follows Indiana Jones around, usually, and steals the stuff that Indiana Jones finds. So at the very beginning of the film, Indiana Jones finds a little Inca statuette. And, it's like a gold statue. And Belloc, because Belloc's a proper scholar and learned the language of the local uh, indigenous tribe, has forged an alliance with that tribe and 
using that alliance, they're able to catch Indiana Jones, who's basically a grave robber, and take the statuette away. And then, of course, Indiana Jones loses his prize. And Indiana Jones has it in for Belloc. Belloc sees himself in Indiana Jones. Uh, we have to realize here that the, the archaeologists in these films, like the Indiana Jones and Belloc, and maybe some of the others that are met in the other films, like I can't quite remember, John Hurt, I think, in the fourth film, uh, Ravenwood, this other guy that's talked about in this movie, but you don't meet, these are basically grave robbers. And the truth is that in that era, the era of Howard Carter, the guy who found Tutankhamun's tomb and all that, a lot of these archaeologists were kind of grave robbers, right? And there's mm -hmm. a lot of controversy about that today. All these relics that they took from all over the world brought to the US or to Britain, Great Britain, put in museums and got really rich doing that. So there was a lot of that going on. So Indiana Jones belongs to that tradition of archeology. span So that's the movie, but the film centers on the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is much more than a kind of MacGuffin to get the plot going. It's, it's a character in the film and that's used mm -hmm. in a trite way. It's a cliche, but it's true in this case. It really has its own agency. There's a moment where Belloc, Indiana Jones's rival refers to it as a radio for talking to God. And uh, I remember like about 10 years ago, I decided to read the Bible cover to cover. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of doing that, but I, I always get stuck early on where it's the begats. Yeah. Numbers. Uh, the numbers in the book of Hebrews are hard to get through. You can skip those, I think. Um, okay. <laughs> but Exodus is a fantastic work of literature. It's like pure science fiction. It's on, it takes place in the future. That's like, that's always what I've felt about Exodus. It's got everything you want in a great fantasy or science fiction story and a work of speculative fiction that's in there. And it's not written like the Greek myths where like people come out with each other's asses and stuff. It's like, it's like <laughs> realistic in a weird way. Um, so, so Belloc says it's a radio for talking to God. But if you look at the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, in Exodus, it really does sound like a machine. Um, the Ark, of course, is the box in which Moses was instructed to place the fragments of the tablets containing the Ten Commandments that which God had destroyed because the Israelites had failed to live up to them. So he basically pulverized them. So he instructed Moses to put the pulverized remains of the tablets in a, an ark, a box. And he gave him detailed assembly instructions for this box. It had to be so, you know, so many cubits long, so many cubits wide. It had to have a mercy seat on top. Everything had to be inlaid in, with gold. It had to have two cherubim on the lid uh, with their wings facing each other. And it was between those two cherubim that God would communicate with Moses. And the ark was essentially a communication device for Moses to, you know, you mm. know chat with, his, with the deity. And this exact, that's exactly what, what the ark was. It was a machine, a radio for talking to God. And it's really hard to imagine how the way that the ark is depicted in the Old Testament, when you're reading it, you're like, well, it makes sense to me. They're making a machine, but they didn't have machines then, not machines of this type. So it's like they're creating the idea of the machine in the desert, hmm. in those texts. And th there are many questions already that come up. Like, why would God need to give detailed assembly instructions if he can communicate through a burning bush or whatever he wants? Is God subject to certain laws that 
kind of transcend him that are that he 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 has to tell Moses how to design a machine that'll be more effective for communicating with him because there are these kind of physical or metaphysical laws that govern the universe that even God has to respect God knows them so tells him how to build the machine to work with them I don't know it's interesting but the idea is that the ark becomes both a communication device for the Nazis for the Nazis sorry a communication device for the Israelites and also a weapon of war so at the Battle of Jericho, the Israelites circle the city seven times and then the, the battlements, the walls just come apart. Or um, when they need to cross rivers, the rivers dry up to let them through. The Ark is always the kind of the vanguard of the army of the Hebrews and guides them through the desert for 40 years. And the, you know, and the, the great the badass named Joshua, uh, one of the great leaders of the Israelites at the beginning, he uses it in war to great effect. It was also a very dangerous tool because it had to, it couldn't be seen. And when it was traveling, the priests couldn't see or touch it. It had to be kept in a tent called a tabernacle. It had to be cared for. It had to be, one had to be very careful around it. There's a story during the reign of King David where this one guy, one priest, grabbed the ark to stop it from falling and immediately was struck dead. At one point, the Philistines steal the Ark and the plagues start to kind of decimate their cities. Wherever the Ark goes, plague follows. And the plague is described as, the symptoms of the plague are described as boils and tumors, which I find interesting. Oh, um, shit. Yeah. Makes it sound like like they were carrying around a- Nuclear a box fu- A box full of uranium or something. Right. In the way that he, had, he says, God says in his instructions, like you got to put gold on the outside, but on the inside too. Usually gold was only put on the outside of things because gold needs to be seen. Why would you waste gold inlaying the inside of a box? Well, maybe as a kind of conductive coating of some sort or some kind of Mm. containment thing. So the link between the Ark of the Covenant and the nuclear bomb, let's say, which was being made at the time where this film is set, 1937, or just about to be made, uh, is really interesting. Right. So for that reason, mm-hmm. I think I th- I'm sure someone else has said this before. I haven't seen it, but that the, the, the Ark of the Covenant in the film is a metaphor for the atomic bomb. And the film kind of plays out the race between the Germans and the Americans for creating the first atomic bomb. And in fact, that plume of smoke at the end, when the ark is opens and then the bodies of the Nazis are taken up into the sky, that plume of, uh, of smoke looks a lot like a mushroom cloud. The sky opens up in a similar way. Yeah. So the, the parallels and analogies are there. But I would argue that, just to finish up, that you know, then it's tempting to say, well, the Ark of the Covenant in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark is a metaphor for the atomic bomb. Well, yeah, but what's more interesting for me is how maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the atomic bomb was a metaphor for the Ark of the Covenant. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm, yeah, I do.
let's talk about the very last shot of the mm. film. Okay. If what the allies have finally, by the end of this film, secured uh, and, and taken from the Nazis and made the world safe, you know, for now, if that object is something like an atomic bomb, maybe the, uh, the foreshadowing, a kind of a proleptic echo of the atomic bomb, then, you know, this is going to be also a Cold War context for this film. Like I said, the film comes out in 1981. Uh, mm. You know, Reagan had not been in the White House for very long, had only been sworn in about a half a year earlier. And of course, this is a time of uh, greatly increased nuclear fear and the worry that the Reagan administration was going to be so bellicose uh, that it was going to provoke nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. Uh, so, you know, there's a definitely, I mean, I remember that. I remember everybody being in a state of heightened nuclear fear. So that would have been a context for this film and particularly makes sense at the end, which is just sort of like answering a question that the film never asks and that probably we never asked while we're watching this insanely entertaining and fast-paced film whiz by, which is why was it lost in the first place? this artifact of tremendous power. How, how do you lose something like that? It's not like a pencil. That's what happens in the Bible. They lose it at the time of the Babylonian conquest, or at least it disappears from the record. How did that happen? And the rabbis were arguing about that for centuries. Yeah, exactly. Like, how did that happen? How do you just lose something like that, right? Right. And one idea that the film leaves us with is, well, what the fuck would you do with an Ark of the Covenant if this thing actually existed? You know, too dangerous to use. Well, describe the last shot in case people don't remember. Okay, so uh, again, for the one person in our <clears throat> list, actually, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe the millennials right. or Generation Z or whatever, the young people today, maybe they're not into this film, in which case- That's we're, true, yeah. Which, if true, we're doing the world a great service by- telling people to run out and watch this film. But I suspect everybody's seen this thing. Anyway, in case you haven't, the last scene, which apparently it was um, uh, painted. Uh, the background was a painting, maybe a painting on glass, but in any event, old school movie effect where you're creating, a, you want to give the sense of a vast interior space that does not actually exist in the real world. And so it's a painted set. Apparently took the artist three months to create it. Wow. And uh, at least that's what Wikipedia tells me. So what you see just before this last shot is those same blowhard government officials talking to Indiana Jones. And they're like, we trust our financial settlement has met with your approval. And he's like, the money's fine, but the situation is unacceptable. And he's really mad because he's like, no one's telling me what's going on with the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, where are you guys putting it? Who's looking at it? And the idea here is, you know, Indiana Jones is an adventurer, but he's also uh, an academic. He knows all the guys who should be looking at this thing. And none of those dudes are getting to look at it. So he's like, wants to know, what are you guys going to do with it? And they're like, we're having top men. Look at it. It's like, well, who? Top men. And it's clearly that's like, that's the end of the conversation. Right. Um, and that's some classic Roswell type shit as well. Like your government is lying to you. The government has in its possession all of these secrets and technologies and so on that are too dangerous to trust the American people, even with the knowledge of much less um, the use of. And 
as the government official says, top men and with a peculiar emphasis. We get a cut to an old dude, like an old gaffer, somebody who's clearly been there, working a in a quick, warehouse. Sorry, but there's a quick scene of uh, Indiana Jones and Mary and his girlfriend at the outside after that. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. And he, he, he you're says right. they don't understand what they've got. They don't understand what they've got there or something like that. They, you know, and then we yeah, get, yeah. and then we get the scene you're about to describe. Okay. You know, I forgot about that scene. Although I actually quite like that scene. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice little, a nice little moment between these two characters, which by the way, the, I mean, this is not my main point, but uh, one of the many things I love about this film is it's one of the few films that has a love plot that I actually give a shit about. Right. Uh, Karen Allen the actress who otherwise hadn't been in that many movies that she's famous for. No. That's really her big movie. Karen Allen is just amazing. Adorable. I mean, she's kind of my type. Listeners will remember how much I gushed over Winona Ryder in uh, Stranger Things. And there's a little bit of the same energy with uh, uh, Karen Allen's performance as Marion. Right. Uh, the daughter of Indy's old mentor, Professor Ravens, Ravenscroft? Ravenswood? Ravenwood, I think. Ravenwood. Anyway, um, yeah, that's a nice little moment, but, and I totally forgot about it. But anyway, the last shot, we see this old gaffer in a slouch cap, I think. You know, he's in a warehouse, and he's the kind of guy who feels like he belongs to the warehouse, like he's clearly been working there for time out of mind. He's uh, the kind of guy that all the other guys who work there call pops, right? Right. And he's pushing along a, a, a freshly sawn pine box, that clearly, we, we there's nothing on the outside that tells us this. It just says something like top secret yeah. uh, in stenciling. But we know that the Ark of the Covenant is in this box. And he's pushing it along on a dolly. And the camera pans back and pans back and pans back. And we see, first it's like, oh, this is a big warehouse. Oh, this is a really big warehouse. Oh, God. It keeps panning back. And you see a warehouse that seems to go on forever. Like this old gaffer is pushing this box through what looks like a canyon of these almost identical pine wood boxes. Uh, and that canyon stretching out into the dim, unmarked distance. And you get a flavor of something that I really love that I, I will call the archival sublime. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. This is a real academic thing to, to say that the fill in the blank sublime, you know, basically academics love to riff on the basic Burkean notion of the sublime, which we've talked about on this show, an idea of beauty that's not reliant on the pretty contrivances of the merely human, but a beauty that's threatening, uh, that threatens to engulf us or crush us uh, with its majesty, its might, its overwhelming power and size and scale and utter indifference to our own uh, feeble, tiny ant-like scale. You see what I'm saying? Like, you know, the sublime beauty of, you know, I don't know, meditating on a, on a, on a craggy mountain or something. But there's like different flavors of sublime. And I think that there's a kind of archival sublime, which is the sense that you get, especially if you ever do archival research, that what you're looking at is a token of a much vaster totality, a totality so vast that no one human mind could ever possibly comprehend it. The sum total of all the things that have been thought and written and recorded in the history of humanity, all of that exists somewhere. It has as its actual real world locus, maybe something like the Library of Congress, 
you know, some kind of vast library that really has set out to capture as much as it can of everything that has ever been thought and written down. But that itself even is a stand-in only for a more ideal figure, the capital L library, like the library in Borges's, uh, what's the short story? Library of Babel. Yeah, the Library of Babel, which is a literally infinite library. You know, that feeling of infinitude, the vastness of the human, Right. The overwhelming scale. Like usually when we talk about the sublime, we're talking about something that's we are thinking of as non-human, something set over and against the human, like a mountain range. But this is like the vastness of the human itself, human expression, human right, thought. Right. Except it- and and that's and that's where the art goes. We see it finally being put into this one obscure little corner of this vast warehouse, and that's the end. Apparently, we are unfit to live with the mystery of the Ark of the Covenant. So we are going to do what apparently some archaic people did thousands of years ago and just forget it. We are going to forget this thing on purpose. It's interesting. That last scene, I've been giving it some thought too. And um, I mean, there are many, it, it opens up many potential avenues of interpretation. It is the archival sublime. I love that. But these archives are non-human, right? Or at least potentially. I mean, I was trying to think like, what, could those other crates contain? Like, what mm. could it be? Other relics equally powerful? If we see the Ark of the Covenant as the presence of Yahweh on earth, then we could say that each one of those crates contains a dead god or a dormant god. A dormant god, And that, yeah. that in a sense, the scene we're seeing at the end doesn't take place in an actual government warehouse, but in the kind of like Canadian, the, the sort of the kind of collective unconscious of humanity where things are Were forgotten. Were you going to say the Canadian unconscious? The Canadian unconscious, which would make a great episode. But uh, I was going <laughs> to say, I meant the collective unconscious of humanity where we forget these things. And um, I also like the fact that you described him as a gaffer because he is dressed as a movie gaffer. He's dressed in the way oh, that really? you picture those old time movie guys that hang out on the sets and, you know, the gaffers on the on a, on a set with the cap. With an overall and a slouch cap. It occurred to me that maybe what he's putting in the box is the film Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is the Ark now for us. It is it is a manifestation of the Ark in itself, just like it was at um, Levi Strauss said that every reiteration of a myth prolongs or revives or expands the myth. Every reiteration mm. of a myth is the myth as it evolves through time. So if we see Raiders of the Lost Ark as a manifestation of the Ark today, it's a film gaffer who works in a movie archive, putting the movie in a crate, you know, filing it with all the other films, each of which is an Ark, because cinema is the Ark. Cinema mm. is a radio for talking to God. But And there, mm. there are other times in the movie where I, f- I feel there's um, a commentary on cinema. And I often feel that with like, I, I'm sure you feel it's the same with music. It's the same with great literature. Like a really great masterpiece is always a study of its own medium. It's what, um, what was it called? Greenberg called... Um, um, media uh, i can't remember the term you use but basically medium awareness like great great art becomes aware of itself as medium and and speaks to us through that awareness of what it is mm-hmm. like there's a kind mm-hmm. of like new self-reflexive consciousness that comes into these works so war and peace is about novels not just about napoleonic wars for example so if we look at it that way we could interpret the last scene in that sense just to jump back a step i like your idea that 
Yeah, I was sort of like, well, what's so damn human about the Ark of the Covenant? It, you know, that when I'm saying it's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's the sublime of the human, you know, what humans create. And yet, at the same time, what seems to be salient about the Ark of the Covenant is it seems to be beyond the merely human. But I like how you flipped it in thinking like maybe what that crate contains is Raiders of the Lost Ark and all those other crates contain other films. Yeah. Um, and I love that idea. It's like, okay, so when you go into the archive, you go into the library and you're looking at writings, poems, novels, pieces of music, paintings, sculptures, uh, the works of philosophy, what have you. Why think that those are human? Right, right, right. What's so human about those either? You know, there's there's something about art itself that, and we've said that so many times on this show, thinking about art as, uh, you know, the figure, our go-to figure is the 2001 space monolith, this singularity, this, this, this absolute mystery. Yeah, sure, you know, uh, a human being named Steven Spielberg directed the film called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And yet there is a thing about these films that has this kind of like, not inhumanity, but like, I don't know, there should be some word for it, more than humanity or beyond humanity. The eldritch, the non-human, yeah, the outside. No, de definitely, yeah. that's a great point. And that's the key, that's the key thing, I think. It's both. It's, the, yeah. it's well, I think that any great film dehumanizes the human in a sense. Um, mm. Inmar Bergman said that, Cinema is about the human face. The face, what the what film did to the human face is very special because narrative um, performance art before cinema was uh, theater. And in theater, the one thing you don't really see is the face. You see bodies, you see faces from afar, you hear words, but theater is about the spoken word. That's what it's about. Cinema is when the face becomes something in itself. The face becomes a world. And um, there's, there are all kinds of classic shots in film where you see the reaction, someone's reaction, a character's reaction to something off screen, and then you see what they see. This is a classic trope of, in film. A character will, their eyes widen, they, you know, mouth agape, whatever, and then you cut to see what they see. What they see is already in the face. The face expresses everything. The rest is just right. kind of unfurling what has already been revealed. But what happens when you turn the face into a medium or when you turn the hand into a medium or when you, what film does is it cuts up the human body into different parts. You can have a full human body, but then you have just a hand then just a face, then just a shoulder and then the back of a head, you know, and the way that film plays with cutting up the human, the actor into different bits and pieces that add up to a character that is not reducible to the actor's body, but a character that's embedded in the setting and plot of the film, a kind of force in a set of forces, is a, a dehumanizing process in the sense, not dehumanizing in a negative sense, but it turns the human into something strange and something new. So yeah, I think that's, I like that. that's very important. It's interesting if you look at old silent films, one of the things that strikes a modern viewer is how stagey they are. And this is not surprising. Actually, this is a point that McLuhan made that any new medium will found itself in the practices of whatever medium it obsolesces or, or is building upon. And so, you know, it's a pretty good example of how you can look at old silent films and they're still trying to do it. They're, they're basically approaching it on the model of a stage play. 
and the idea that, oh, well, you just park a camera and you record the stage play, but what it is really is a stage play. No, what it is really is is a film, but it takes a while for directors to really fill out the capacities of the medium. And somebody like D.W. Griffith is held up as a master to some extent because when you watch his films, even though they're super old-timey and uh, if we're talking about Birth of a Nation, uh, super racist and belong to a worldview that feels uh, antediluvian, nevertheless, it feels modern. It's recognizably modern filmmaking because he's doing the kinds of things that you're talking about, yeah. um, giving us faces and the face is the is an object almost like any other object, but an object that reveals its character through the photography. That re this all reminds me of uh, the film theory of David Mamet. There's a book, I can't remember the title, and I read this back in the 90s. On film directing, I think it's the one you're talking about, Oh, okay, right? yeah. And it's a, it's a bunch of transcripts of a kind of masterclass he gave for film students. And at the beginning of it, he has a scenario of a young man who wants to talk to his professor before class to talk about getting a grade changed or something like that. And so he, Mamet, walks his students through step by step, like, how are we going to break this down? And we decide, like, what is this scene really about? It's like, well, he's going to ask for a grade change. Yes, but what's the emotional truth of the situation? What is he really asking for? Well, what he's really asking for, they decide, is respect. Right. And then Mamet's like, okay, how are we going to show wanting respect in a filmic way? And for him, a filmic way is through the juxtaposition of what he calls uninflected shots. What he doesn't like is mouthy, wordy exposition. He doesn't like some talking head telling you what a film should show. This is getting back to Greenberg. You know, Greenberg likes to talk about what the medium is capable of doing in itself. So painting, for example, which was the main medium, medium that Greenberg wrote about. Well, what's the deal with painting? It's flat surfaces. It's laminations, paints, acrylic, oil, whatever the fuck, on some kind of planar surface. That's the truth of painting. And so painting, when it's really cracking, for example, with the abstract expressionists whom, the, whom Greenberg championed, then that becomes decoration of flat surfaces that becomes about the decoration of flat surfaces in the way that you just described. Likewise, Mamet is thinking about film. What does film do? You know, film shows us real world objects juxtaposed in a series of shots. Right. You can show things, you can show things in time, and you can show juxtapositions of things because you can cut film. That's the essence of the medium. And so what he's not interested in is talking. And what he's also not interested in is the camera like following the actor around. Right. Good acting for him is really, really plain. It's a simple like just getting the job done. He doesn't like mannerist actors, actors who chew scenery and, and make it about their performance. Because for him, that's the importation of another artistic medium into the basic truth of film. For him, the perfect film is Dumbo, the Disney animated film. Because he's like, you can watch that movie without knowing a word of the English language and you understand moment by moment everything that has happened. Right. It is perfect film. And... I've thought about this actually last night as I was re-watching Raiders of the Lost Ark because although it does have exposition, it has that marvelous scene of exposition that you've already described, and we certainly have the camera following 
Harrison Ford around very famously in the scene where he's running to dodge that giant rolling boulder at the beginning. Nevertheless, it's kind of old school movie directing, partly because it really relies upon like the face of an actor. It's not uninflected in the sense that we just get a blank face. It's uninflected in the sense of like, we get the face in that particular attitude and we're not going to try and do some scenery chewing shit where like suddenly I'm going to start throwing a plate and screaming and running around the room and so on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just think of the scene where Indiana Jones is revealed at the very beginning. You know, he's got his... um his helpers, Indiana Jones being, but you don't see his face. That's the thing. For the first yeah. few minutes, you see his back, you see, his, back, you see the, his silhouette, you see his hat, and you see these other guys following him. And they're, they look nervous and agitated. For example, one of them, you know, chops these vines with his machete and reveals this idol and these birds fly out of the idol and the guy freaks out and runs away. And then this, this faceless figure that is Indiana Jones walks up looks at the idol and then just moves on. And the others are getting more and more nervous as they get deeper into the, as they go deeper into the jungle and they get to a waterfall. And then the faceless figure that we're following that's leading this expedition, we see him consulting the fragments of an old map. And then one of his, one of his helpers actually pulls out a gun and is about to shoot him. And then Indiana Jones famously whips the gun out of the guy's hand and then steps into the sunlight and you see his face and that expression and Harrison Ford, say what you will, is a master of the face. He is one of the great, great actors for that reason, because his face speaks volumes. It's crazy what he can do with his face. There's no performance. He's not performing. He just steps into the light and he's thinking a certain thought and it gives his face this look, which gives you a hundred percent the full character. He's all exactly. there. He's all there. Or one half of the character, because he's a two-sided character. He's got this other bumbling persona. He's like a superhero, right? He, mm-hmm. he actually physically puts on his superhero outfit and then becomes Indiana Jones and then comes back to being kind of a, you know, subpar university professor. <laughs> um, and, and And that's a perfect example of what you're saying. It's the, the power, the juxtaposition of shots. It's the fact that the whip happened before this expression that gives that expression its power. If he didn't have to say, I'm going to whip your ass, boy, or whatever. He just, <laughs> he just does it, steps in, and the juxtaposition of, you know, waterfall, sunlight, shadows, whip, gun, um, fear, mm. nervousness, and that expression gives you the whole thing. Everything's there. And it's so economical. I mean, this is getting back to what you were saying right at the beginning. Uh, Just the mastery of editing choices and how economically that tells a story, how economically it it defines character and, you know, setting the mood as well, the the all-important mood, which we were also talking about. And, you know, there's a reason we call... Uh, Hollywood stars, stars, right? Because there's something that happens in film where the human is transmuted into something else. The human becomes, ascends to a kind of firmament. And uh, we call them stars for a reason. We don't call them rocks or stones, or we could have called them anything. We could have called them like, I don't know, stallions <laughs> and, and mares. <laughs> we could have called them anything, knights and ladies. We call them stars because the camera has a way of turning the human into the non-human. And I think that great films are films that do this. Another f- filmmaker that comes up a lot is Kubrick. I mean, Kubrick's mm. characters aren't humans. They're not human beings. They're something else. 
Um, so, and I think I love that Mammoth book, actually. I've, I've had a kind of love-hate relationship with that book. Um, but now in my old age, I, um, I appreciate it more and more, you know. Um, I was a big fan of what's, yeah. What? Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's just well. What's the part? What's the part of it you don't like, or have not well, liked he, in the past? Uh, he he rails against European cinema in that film. He basically his main argument is that a film should tell a story, a narrative story, and I've always thought that that's importing from literature. So he's like, yeah, fuck theater, but a film should be like a novel. I always mm-hmm. had that sense that he was, and he doesn't like films that have non sequitur or rifts in their cutting films that jump from one thing to another. He would have hated the mammoth who wrote that book would not have liked David Lynch. Um, yeah. uh, so I had problems with those things, but essentially mechanically what he's describing is, is very true about what film is, um, and what images are, you know? And, um, and, you know, and the thing about film is that the, the key move, the key gesture of cinema is, and what distinguishes it from photography and from theater and from literature is the cut. The cut is where film happens. So strangely, yeah. and maybe this is true of all media, the magic, the crux of the media is something that's not visible in the media. And the cut, the, the, the cut, which is invisible, you're literally going from one frame to another, but there's been a cut, the gap is the the essence of of film and that's where that magic happens that's where images are juxtaposed and that kind of non-space which is the cut uh kind of spatio-temporal rift or break in the continuity of things so it's like every cut in a movie is a a continuity problem (laughs) like essentially (laughs) if i cut from me to you there's a continuity problem i didn't go through all the space between us so that's why I've always had reservations about people who uh, insist on pointing out and laughing at discontinuities in films. Oh, look, the sandwich was half eaten in the last shot. And now it's, he's just started the sandwich. That makes no sense. This film sucks. Like there's a whole <laughs> hobby of like collecting, you know, on IMDb for each film, you'll have a section you can go to and look at all the, the errors, know, that's continuity errors in the film. I find that so pedant, so, so silly such a waste of time and such a, such a, a, a flagrant example of like missing the point mm. uh, because there is like, there are sometimes it's in the discontinuities in the continuity errors that the essence of something reveals itself. For example, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have uh, an archeologist who has a deadly fear of snakes, right? We learn at the very beginning, Indiana Jones is afraid of snakes. Later on, he's in Egypt and he finds the well of souls, the temple where the Egyptian pharaohs, hid the Ark from the Hebrews. So they find this uh, entranceway to the Well of Souls from the roof. So they open this this huge kind of slab of stone. They move it aside. And Indiana Jones looks into the Well of Souls where the Ark is kept and sees thousands and thousands of snakes. And then he says- At first, they don't see snakes. They see movement. Yeah. Why does the floor move? And then that general feeling of like roiling movement resolves into the bodies of snakes. Right. Well, he says, give me your torch. Indiana Jones grabs his buddy's torch, throws it down, and it lights up this room with thousands of snakes. And then Indiana Jones turns and says, snakes, why'd it have to be snakes? Because that's his one fear. But of course, and then people might go, well, how would those snakes survive for thousands of years in the well of souls? Well, what are the chances that his one phobia is the thing that's in the well of souls? Well, yeah, that's the point, stupid. 
The snakes weren't there. <laughs> the snakes weren't there until he opened the lid. What we have here is an example of retrocausation. The well mm. of souls became what he fears most. It's the way the ark protects itself. And so the snakes mm. weren't down there until he opened it. And that tells us something about how this God is outside of time, outside of the human. And in a sense, sometimes those errors or those rifts are in, in a sense the keys to understanding what the hell is going on in this movie and how magical it is. Okay, I want to change the subject. Kind of jumping back to an earlier stage of the conversation, which is the wild God that is contained in the Ark of the Covenant. Jehovah as being this old, strange, deeply frightening God. And the question is like, okay, so are the people who live today, are they worshiping that God? Mm. Whether you're a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim and you go to worship... Supposedly, we're all worshiping the same God, the God of Abraham, but that God, is that God the same as the God that's in that box? I don't know. I was reading up on the Ark, and I read that archaeologists um, have found that carrying an Ark, Ark is actually an Elizabethan era word for a box, right? A kind of chest. So carrying a box containing- The uh, box of the covenant does not quite have the same ring to it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, the, it was a common thing among, amongst uh, nomadic tribes in the Near East. So they would travel with a, a container of some sort containing their idols. Sometimes they had many idols in it. And there is speculation that the Ark of the Covenant of the Israelites contained actually many idols, the idols of many gods that they'd been accumulating for thousands of years. And um, that idea that that arcs are kind of a relic or a vestige of a polytheistic nomadic world is interesting. Because what is the ark is a way to carry your temple with you, right? Like what, mm-hmm. whenever they made the tabernacle, the tent, and put the ark in, they had the temple. What became the temple of Jerusalem was literally the tabernacle. The tabernacle evolves into the holiest of holies in the temple of Jerusalem. So there's a, a perfect continuity between the, this nomadic tribe carrying this house. Actually, I think the Ark was actually referred to as the house of the Lord sometimes too. It's a house. Mm. And so it's a temple, but it's a temple. It's a technology that belongs to an ancient polytheistic culture that later on, when they were interpreting their own history, they projected monotheism back into it. But perhaps the Ark was actually a polytheistic device uh, mm, containing many idols. There's so many connections, like Kaaba, right? The famous black cube at Mecca, which the um, Muslims go and worship at. Um, That black cube, which looks like something from a science fiction film. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's a fantastic piece of architecture. was originally a temple where all the Arabic tribes of the Arabian Peninsula would keep their idols. So if you had a god, you brought your god there, you put an idol of that god in there, and they were all in there. And Muhammad came in and destroyed all the idols and made Kaaba 
again, the Kaaba is an ark. It's a box containing gods, a box of gods. So like this concept, <laughs> what's a box of gods and what kind of gods are in there? In a sense, maybe the film is telling us, yeah, we all say we worship Yahweh or Jehovah, or at least Christians and Jews say they, but maybe what was in that actual box was something much more mysterious. I mean, it's interesting that it's not one being that comes out of the ark at the end, but many, many beings. And we interpret them as angels. Are they angels? Are these all the dead gods of the Hebrews? Mm -hmm. Um is there a multiplicity inside the box? Mm. Um, usually boxes are, are made to contain many things, not just one thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Who is the God that, what's the difference between the Yahweh we encounter in Raiders of the Lost Ark and the God that people worship on Sundays or, or uh, Saturdays, as the case may be? It's an interesting question. I will note question. in passing that I think we already have a good title for this episode. Box O Gods. <laughs> that would be a good title. It's like Box of Rain by Grateful Dead. Well, it's yeah. just a box of gods. I don't know who put it there. Um, I, I have a complicated thought. Let's see if I can get it out straight. Um, the transition from Judaism to Christianity creates a unique God situation. And then, it, and then from Christianity to Islam, which is the same God as well. But yeah. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Super complicated. But it's complicated in part, I think, because it introduces the idea of a historical God. Mm. Like you think of a lot of gods, and I'm not going to say all gods, but you think of your, I don't know, standard issue God that you pull out of your box of gods. Especially if we're thinking about this in Jungian terms as an archetype. Well, what the gods really are is uh, faces for archetypes that are themselves faceless and incommunicable. Then gods don't change. They're static principles, you know. They just are, right? But what's interesting is that the advent of Christianity, if you are buying into the Christian narrative, what you believe is that God changes, that the nature of the connection between God and humanity changes, that by sending his son, his child, into the world and allowing an incarnation, you know, God joins the level of, of God's creation. You know, there's this idea... I'm feel like I'm on thin ice because I'm not a Christian and I feel like if I try to front like I can speak in theological terms, I'm going to betray my ignorance. But as I understand it, there's a fundamental idea is that when this happens, that God, the capital G God, the one God, um, mellows out, becomes a fundamentally different kind of God becomes a God of love, not a God of retribution. Right. The idea is like the God of the New Testament is the same as the Old Testament, but he's different because something happened in history. A unique event happened in history. Jesus Christ lived on this planet, was crucified, was resurrected and sent into heaven. And because of this one thing that happens in historical time, the nature of God changes. And so then God becomes... As remote and awesome, awe-inspiring as the God of Jehovah, as the one God, the, the Abrahamic God is, nevertheless, that God is a little bit more like human beings in that respect, mm -hmm. in that 
that's a God that has a story. Right. That's a God that things happen to. And maybe that's where we get our pervasive habit of historicism. Maybe this is, you know, a civilization founded upon the Christian mythos is going to be a civilization that becomes historicist sooner or later. Our dating system is based on that event. So yes, I mean, that's when yeah. we put the beginning. Of course, yeah. there have been other dating systems. But I, I, I think that's really interesting. At the same time, though, I think that the Yahweh of the Old Testament is already historical, which is what makes him very exceptional among those old world deities. Mm. If you compare him to Dagon or uh, Moloch or Baal or whatever, or the, all the other gods that were worshipped in the Near East, there's something about Yahweh that is already kind of historical. From the beginning, it's a story about the people of Israel and their relationship with their God. It's the only example of that we have in the ancient world. There's no other example of a text describing the relationship between a people and their God through time, at least not in the West in Western civilization. And, and the God reveals himself progressively from one prophet to the next over time. And in a sense, there's a kind of continuity or kind of uh, consummation of the God at the time of Christ's manifestation or Christ's incarnation in Jewish, I mean, I'm no expert either, but in the Jewish vision, uh, it's the same thing. It's just that they don't think that the Messiah has come yet, but there is this historical event in the future. It's already historicized. Oh yeah. But the question is, when did it become historical? Um, Was Yahweh historical from the beginning? Is he in his, by his nature, a historical God? Basically, just the one great old one who's really interested in what humans are doing. There is um, in the Lovecraft. That's an interesting thought. Or even more generally than interest in what humans are doing. The one God that's interested in the one thing about incarnation. Right. That's unique, which is like it happens in time. Incarnation necessarily is a descent into time. Right. Whereas the other gods are content to be outside of that. Yeah. Maybe Yahweh's the one who just can't stop dipping into the slipstream of time. In Lovecraft, there's a great old, he's actually a, a, an outer god named Nair Lothotep. We mentioned him before. We did a, yeah. an episode on that. And he's kind of the one of the few of the, the only outer god who has a vested interest in humanity. Not in that humanity's flourishing, mind you, in a humanity's like madness and in the... the Disintegration, dis- into, yeah. yeah, disintegration of the human mind. <laughs> um, but there's also another god in in the Lovecraft mythos called Nodens. Nodens was actually originally a pagan Celtic god that was imported into the Roman pantheon when the Romans uh, colonized Britain. But the idea is that in the Lovecraft stories, Nodens is interested in humans somehow, communicates with mm. humans, and he his nature is evil because he comes from that other place, but his intentions don't seem to be. So maybe Yahweh is one of many gods, but the reason he says, I am the God of, I am your God, your only God, is because I'm the only one of these motherfuckers that gives a shit about you. And, yeah. and I'm an asshole. <laughs> so you better, you know. You, you, <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good news, bad news situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's the sense you get in the Old Testament. He's, he's, he's like a, kind of a petulant child sometimes and sometimes a monster like literally a monster you know yeah it's 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 weird when you start trying to try to psychoanalyze the gods um, it's super interesting to think about uh Yahweh being a god who has gone through stages and the bit of him that's in the ark of the covenant 
is one bad motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Not a god of love. Yeah. That's it's a god of kicking your ass. Well, that anecdote I told is a perfect example. You know, the priest who uh saw that the ark was about to topple and fall and grabs it to stop it because he loves it so much and he respects his god, he loves it's his like god a, so much. And he's fuck you for respecting yeah, me. Struck dead. Sorry, it's not personal. This thing is fucking powerful and you, you're you messing with forces you don't understand. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. It's the rules. You know, at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they're, you know, Marion and Indiana Jones are tied to a post, a very strange looking post with a weird sphere at the top, a light of some sort. And they're, they're tied to it and they have to, and, and the Nazis And who are, knows why? Yeah. The Nazi- yet an, yet an, another easily escapable situation that they're put in. Right. <laughs> like if you if you want any kind of narrative realism, I mean, this movie is not for you. Well, I can see how Belloc would have wanted Indiana Jones to see. Yeah, it, yeah, I could imagine that. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Because uh, because they're rivals. So, anyways, he he ties them. They're tied to a post, and they're watching these Nazis perform the ceremony, or Belloc's performing a ceremony to, to open up the ark. And Indiana Jones turns to Marion and says, "Shut your eyes, Marion. Whatever you do, don't look at it." Because he knows very well that this fucking yeah. God, even though this dude is the chosen one who will save his Ark from the Nazis, this God will fry you if you look at him. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, isn't there- I, I, yeah. I love this idea of old cranky gods. I bet you do. <laughs> a god into my own image <laughs> phil he created him in his image he created him <laughs> nobody wants that kind of god um yeah there's a occultist named jan fries uh, a german occultist who has written he wrote a great book on runes called Hellrunar, and in that book he talks about the old norse uh, the old germanic pantheon and runes and rune magic and so on. But he is talking about a lot of stuff besides. Uh, his books are always very interesting because they're just full of um, crossways speculations and ideas about different aspects. I mean, he actually, if his books weren't so damn long, it would be really cool to do a Weird Studies episode on, on one of them. Um, but he actually is talking about the challenges of communing with the truly ancient gods. As, as a, a fairly fearless occultist, you get the feeling he spent a lot of time finding very old gods to talk to. And in Hellrunar, he writes, many of the elder deities are in a wretched state after millennia of oblivion. They have little or no energy, are badly out of touch with the times, and require re-education to adapt to modern ways of thinking. I've met several who resented being woken, loathed modern humans, and screamed for their usual offerings of blood and violence. <laughs> I find that interesting. Like uh, he's a bit of a. He, I love the way he like has this superiority about it. Those fucking. Yes, guys. they need to be re-educated. <laughs> Send them to re-education camp. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, have you read uh, Neil Gaiman's book American Gods? Yeah, absolutely. It's full of stuff like that. Gods that are on their last legs. It's sort of an idea that we've, I think, touched on before. The idea that a god exists to the degree that he or she or it has followers. Right. Uh, that every time that you pray to a god, every time you make an effigy of it, every time you put any kind of 
human psychic energy into that god, that's food for that god, and that god exists a little bit more as a result of that. And so Gaiman is playing around with the idea of that you have these old gods that people have kind of forgotten about, and so these gods are just hanging on by a thread. You know, they're malnourished, uh, old, run-down. Insane. And insane, yeah. 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 that And that's a cool conceit, isn't it? That's a neat fictional conceit. And I like the idea that the God in the Box, this version of Yahweh that I feel pretty sure is not the Yahweh that uh, Christians, Jews, and Muslims are praying to uh, on their holy days. Pretty sure it's not the same. Or if it's the same God, it's the same in the sense that the photo of you at age six sitting on your mom's mantelpiece is, is you. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Like... This is some older version of that God that has somehow remained in stasis and is a God sort of like these gods that Jan Fries keeps poking with a stick and waking up. These gods that are like fatigued and anemic from their slumber and just in a pissy fucking mood. But but he's he was just as pissy back then, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> but this particular one, he's like, I've been trapped in this fucking box and I'm... I'm in as foul a mood as I was when I came in here. Um, and then he's like, I'm out. Okay, I'm going back in. Fuck you all. <laughs> it was like, okay, so let's talk about that, that plume. I had forgot, uh, as much as I started this recording by saying that every frame of this film is etched in my memory, I'd kind of forgotten that climactic image where after all the Nazis are dead, and by the way, there's so many things to talk about, even just in that scene, like when the angels or whatever the fuck they are, the those, those sort of gaseous entities are floating among the Nazi soldiers, but they haven't started killing yet. Yeah. And they're all you enthralled know, by it. It's beautiful. And, yeah. and there's this one that's moving in a way that obviously in a show, radio or uh, you know, podcast, audio only broadcast, I can't show it to you, but there's this one soldier who's sort of moving... Yeah. Like this? Yeah. I'll make a gif of it and put it up in the Twitter like feed or something. Like he's being moved by it kind of thing. Yes. And it looks sort of like a mannequin, like somebody rotating a mannequin in a shop window. You know, moments like that, there are little rift moments. Right. You know, this is a scene that is shot so beautifully. People spend a lot of time talking about like the amazing special effects, like when um, uh, Tote, the aptly named... Gestapo commandant whose face just melts off his skull. People love to talk about the amazing uh, special effects that were developed uh, in order to get that effect. And they were really super amazing. Um, but th everything in this scene is just on point and gives you this wonderful bath of strangeness at the end of this film. But I'd forgotten about that atomic bomb cloud plume thing that ascends up to heaven. And then, and you see the lid of the arc being blown to heaven and then it comes corkscrewing down the flame kind of just goes back into the box and the lid goes gunk yeah falls right <laughs> back on right back on it and you know and it's just indy and marianne left and, and their their uh, bonds are undone so they actually they're actually yeah. freed by the god as well yeah and that moment itself is a pretty rifty moment Mm. Um, you've already said a little bit that, you know, it certainly calls to mind the atomic bomb, which now that you mention it, yeah, I, I, it totally does. But, uh, but, but what would you say about that moment? It sounded like you had more to say about it. 
Well, well, that's precisely it, that it's uh, an evocation or it evokes, for me, the atomic bomb. And I would say, like, when I was said earlier that one could approach this film looking at the atomic bomb as a as a metaphor. It wasn't it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant that's a metaphor for the atomic bomb, but the atomic bomb that's a metaphor for the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. And what I mean is that what happened with the atomic bomb, and we talked about this in our very first or second episode, Garmin Bosia, is that the atomic bomb, um, the Manhattan Project, was from the beginning uh, um, pervaded by a kind of sense of the mystical. You know, Oppenheimer named the project. Project Trinity, the testing project for the bomb. And um, he fame, you know, as he saw the first tests and as he saw that plume rise into the sky, he said, or he thought to himself, I've become Shiva, the destroyer of worlds. There was a sense that these scientists were penetrating the kind of like the holiest of holies, the atom, the inner sanctum, the the the, mm-hmm. the kernel, the basic fundamental kernel of reality, and breaking it, and that the ark, in a sense, was an instrument for doing just that, for penetrating the the divine spark behind the cosmos or at the base of the cosmos, and that in a sense that that's what we're seeing at the end. That that image for us is a way is a it's code for telling us that the God that we touched at Trinity, that God, that God that we mentioned, the, the fear, that God, the God that you describe as the fear, that thing that feeds, maybe has something to do with the God in the box. Mm. Maybe in a sense, these ancient deities who required sacrifice. I mean, truth be told, the Hebrews were sacrificing to the ark, to Yahweh's through the ark, throughout the book of Exodus. Yeah. Um, so this is a desert God, a storm God, a God of the ancient world, a God that feeds on fear as much as he does on love. In fact, his love is rooted in fear. You know, the, mm. the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the first uh, of the Proverbs, isn't it? Or one of the first. Interesting. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, you know, in a yeah. sense, it's a, just to, to make my point clear is all I mean is that maybe the atomic bomb was the rebirth of that God in the modern world. Oh, that's super interesting. Which suggests, I like that because that sort of weirds the atomic bomb and even our own interpretations or prior interpretations of it. Because, you know, the thing everybody, including us, uh, say have said about the the atomic bomb is that it's a kind of Pandora's box thing. That it's just fucking with stuff that you should not be fucked with. But what if, okay, the plume at the end of the, that column of fire at the end of Indiana Jones. I always have the feeling watching that over and over again when I was 12, that that was something that God wanted to happen and had to happen. That maybe in a sense, all of this stuff, the not Indiana Jones and the Nazis digging this stuff up and chasing each other all over the place and opening it up. This was all kind of part of a mm-hmm. providential plan. Yeah, I had the same feeling. That all was yeah. all supposed to happen because I always had the feeling with that plume that is something extra. That doesn't have to do with the shit that's happening down on the ground. That is, that's God business. Right. That's God yes. communicating with himself. I have the same impression. Like, oh, now we're watching something that has nothing to do with us or with the plot. It's like God doing his own thing here and we're getting to see yes. a little glimpse of it. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't believe yeah. you're articulating this. This was like half conscious for me and has been every time I've seen that movie. That's yeah. crazy. So, And from that point of view- then you look at the atomic bomb and you're like, oh shit, what if we were supposed to do that? Right, right. What if that's, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, but think about it. I mean, I said at the beginning, uh, 
Moses constructs the ark based on detailed assembly instructions. I actually copy pasted the instructions from the, from the book of Exodus. They're really detailed and it's all recorded about how God told Moses to build this thing. In other words, he's assembling a machine. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something, some connection between that ancient desert God, that machine building God and the machine building that led to, uh, to Hiroshima. Maybe there's a kind of process that has to do with technology, with the manipulation and reconfiguration of matter, that this Yahweh character has some kind of connection to that process. And that in a sense, yeah, just as that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark is kind of God's own theophany, like the kind of theophany that all this was designed to bring about is happening. Maybe in a sense, when Oppenheimer said, I've become Shiva, the destroyer of worlds, he was realizing that all along he had been the the instrument of this strange God that has to do with how matter can be reconfigured and rearranged. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.